Hey, this is Sayyam Bhutani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science, a podcast for data science enthusiasts where I interview practitioners, researchers and cacklers about their journey, experience and talk all things about data science. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chai Time Data Science Show. In this episode, I interview David Foster, co-founder of Applied Data Science, a data science consultancy, also author of Generative Deep Learning book, uh, which is by the publisher O'Reilly, if you've not heard of it. In this episode, we talk all about David's journey into the field of data science, his uh, path as a data scientist. And his experience about technical writing. If you aren't familiar with David's uh, blog post, you should definitely check them out. You can find links in the description of this podcast. We also talk all about generative deep learning, the book, the efforts that went into the book and all about its content and the thought process behind it. If you'd like to get in touch with David for a consultancy project, uh, you should be able to find all the links to Applied Data Science in this podcast description. We are, I'm also really excited and thankful to David who agreed to do two giveaways of the book, the Generative Deep Learning book. You can find details in the description of this podcast. We'll be giving away two of these books Please check out the links to a tweet and a LinkedIn post in the description if you'd like to enter the giveaway. For now, here's my interview with David Foster all about generative deep learning, tech writing and data science consulting. Please enjoy the show. Hello, David. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. No problem. Thank you very much for having me on. So uh, you're currently a co-founder of Applied Data Science, a data science consultancy, which we'll just talk about. You also have been working as a data scientist for the past few years. Could you tell the uh, listeners how how you got started in data science and what made you pick this as a career path? Yeah, sure. So I started out, um, actually, my, my academic degree was in maths, um, and then I did an operational research master's. So that kind of like sparked my interest, I guess, to begin with in the field of data science, um, mm-hmm. which really wasn't a term when I was studying. Um, it's <laughs> something that uh, has kind of taken off really rapidly in the last few years. Um, so it was, it was kind of called operational research, I guess. Um, and, and I think that field definitely still exists in its own right. Um, but now data science is the, is the buzzword. So um, really what I wanted to do leaving university was find a job where I could get some practical experience um, away from academia. Um, okay. So yeah, my, my first job was actually, um, my first data science job was with a, a radio and media company um, called Global. Mm-hmm. And for them, it was, it was really a case of understanding. They had a huge amount of data, obviously, on, on advertising. And it was really all about understanding how best to, um, to place those ads that was best for their clients, but also to optimize the, um, the inventory. Um, so it was a really interesting challenge. Uh, and a lot, of the, a lot of it actually back then was all about visualizing how this was being placed and, and making sure that the sales team and both the sales team and the customers knew how their advertising was being uh, placed. And um, so we used to like Tableau uh, to do that. 
Um, but it was a great sort of introduction to the field because it, it really wasn't a case that you were given perfect data. You had to do a lot of the, the kind of dirty work up front to kind of get it to, yeah. to work. So, yeah. Um, and then I, I've worked for a genealogy company called uh, Find My Past. Again, really interesting data set all about family history. Um, and I started uh, applied data science with my co-founder, Ross Vitesjak, who I used, also used to work with at Find My Past. Um, so okay. we've been doing that now for three years. Um, and yeah, it's, it's gone really well. Um, we've, we've taken on board some really, really fantastic members of staff uh, and we've, we've tackled some really interesting problems. We'll just talk, talk about the project that you worked on, but uh, there's this common belief that uh, you have, for example, you have a quote-unquote traditional math background and it's mm. supposed to be helpful. Can you confirm or deny the belief? How, to what extent was your math background helpful? Of course, you went to Cambridge and you, you're really a smart person, but... Did you have to start from scratch or uh, how, to what extent was that helpful? Yeah, it's a really interesting question that because, you know, you kind of assume uh, in certainly when I was studying that your degree is everything, you know, you to get the, <laughs> the best jobs or to get on in life, you have to have a degree. And I think that's changing actually a lot uh, recently, especially with the likes of I think Apple and Google now, not necessarily requiring a, a four year degree uh, yeah. for some of their software engineering roles. Um, and it, with maths in particular, I think if, if you're looking to go into deep learning, um, if you're looking to go into statistical roles, like particularly in healthcare, mm-hmm. having, having some sort of mathematical background is surely going to help because for deep learning, you have to kind of understand at a ground roots level how these algorithms are working with tensors and matrix multiplication, yep. etc. And then obviously, if you're working in a field such as healthcare, an understanding of hypothesis testing, statistical testing in general, um, you know, Bayesian statistics is going to be valuable. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think actually we, we live in an amazing age now where information is free. Yeah. Um, we, we should never forget that just about everything that, you know, our parents was <laughs> struggling to get hold of through books and through university degrees. We have almost ex- inexclusively on the Internet. You know, it's, it's yeah. just an amazing time to be uh, to be learning. Um, and so I, th- I think, you know, the next generation actually is going to find that they have a really tough choice to make when they come to 18. <laughs> and, and it's not necessarily always going to be the case that a degree is the right way to go forward. Um, uh, it's we're thinking very carefully about actually as part of our own company is, is how do we want to attract the best candidates um, <laughs> and how important a degree is as a part of that equation. What, what are your thoughts on, uh, for example, MIT and a lot of the common, uh, like the top institutes have these courses already available on the math uh, that, almost serves as a background for deep learning. So do you think the knowledge for people who have already done their degree can be acquired through these courses or is there still a requirement in your opinion? Well, I think what, what the degree gives you is structured learning. And I think it's hard sometimes if you're learning solely independently on your own, not to just rush through these courses just so you can get the certificate at the end to put on your LinkedIn profile. Um, and I think what is going to be hard for, for employers is to identify those who have really understood the material and have got the, the online degree through the likes of Stanford or MIT, um, and those who've really taken the time to absorb the material. Mm-hmm. Um, because the certificate in itself isn't why you've done the course. You know, it, they are actually fairly easy to get through. Um, yeah. it's, it's more a case of once you've got that knowledge, how do you then apply it? So what we would look for, for example, is um, perhaps a GitHub page where mm-hmm. they've taken their ideas and they've applied it to their own data set, or they've tweaked some of the algorithms that they've used and they've come up with a new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yes, it's very important to kind of, you know, appreciate that people have taken the time out of effectively their own spare time to take these courses. But um, we'd be more interested in, in seeing what they've done after the course with that knowledge, really. That's a great comment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so coming to your current uh, job as a co-founder could you tell us what what is a day in your life look like so a day in the life of a co-founder look like yeah it's different every day honestly we, we wake up sometimes and you never know what's going to hit you that day it could be, <laughs> um you know you could be talking all day with someone quite senior about a project at a very high level but then sometimes you're talking right down to the individual lines of code with somebody on your team so it, it's very exciting um we uh, we take on range of projects from all different clients so we're not we're not particular lines to any one vertical so we work for example with fintechs uh, government private equity uh, pharmaceuticals um and, and the challenge is always the same it's, it's always about taking a data set and turning it into something that is delivering valuable yep. uh, deliver valuable uh, work not just for today but the next year and the year after and so on so it's something that's sustainable uh, in, in terms of um, the work that's been delivered isn't just isn't just something that gives a bit of value now but it's going to be used for, for years to come um, so yes I think in terms of my day-to-day job what what I really have to do and so does my co-founder is make sure that we we never lose sight of that big picture mm-hmm. and we don't we don't go down a rabbit hole of you know why isn't this particular algorithm working or what why um, <laughs> why can't we get hold of this particular data set but we just always answering the client's question which is how can we make um, something more efficient or, or more optimal or ultimately more profitable using the data that we're collecting. Got it. So uh, Applied Data Science has some very interesting projects on the website. I was just going through it. Could you tell us more about the company? Yeah, sure. So when we started three years ago, um, we thought that there was a bit of a gap in the market because we saw um, we saw a lot of examples of work being done by external third parties that perhaps wasn't as end-to-end as we knew data science projects needed to be. And what I mean by that is there's this process up front that needs to happen where you take not just data sets that are in CSVs or kind of in, in extracted data sets and, and build a model on that and then it's working on your computer and then you kind of leave the project because you think it's done. But actually there's a whole kind of architecture piece that needs to go on around it. So how do we get this data from where it's sitting in a warehouse through into perhaps a Python script and then ultimately out to the business in a way that's digestible. So a dashboard, APIs, um, everything's containerized so it can work on any environment in the cloud. Um, and it's, it's really about solving those problems. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think data science in general could learn a lot from the construction industry. You know, when you, when you build a construction project, it's not just about the house. It's about the plumbing, right. about the, you know, how it looks visually and is it, a, is it a nice place to live in? And is it still going to be standing in two years' time? <laughs> you know, so, so, and, and the way that they organize their projects as well, there, there are lots of different people with different skills being brought to the team um, all the way through the, the project. Um, and often, it's too often the case that, that perhaps companies think that they can just hire somebody in, one data scientist, and all of their problems will be solved. Mm-hmm. So what we try and do is build teams and put teams together that have a range of skills, and we drop them into the project just when they're needed. Okay. They, so some people might be experts in machine learning, some people might be experts in Tableau, some people might be Python programmers, R programmers. So you name it, we've got it covered. Um, and it means that we can build these really dynamic and agile teams to solve problems. Got it. Also, also that's a great analogy for construction and uh, machine learning. Could you yeah. tell us more about the team? So is, is it just uh, the two co-founders or do you keep hiring on an on and off basis? No, so yeah, we've got a, a really uh, fantastic team. Um, we have some people who've uh, come from all different backgrounds. So for example, um, one guy that we, we work with, he used to work in property. So he's got quite a good understanding of the, um, the side of the business that, that relates to working in prop tech. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got people who've worked um, with uh, FinTech quite closely. Um, we, have, we have people who've kind of got a Python background, some people code in R, 
we're not actually too too picky about bringing people okay. in with lots of skills. We we don't like to say we only require people who code in Python because actually mm-hmm. a good programmer can probably pick up a programming language very very quickly if they need to. Yeah. Um, so we we cover a lot of bases, uh, and we've got an office here in London in Old Street. Um, most of our our work actually um, comes from London simply because we can we can be face to face on the ground with the client within half an hour if we need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's so valuable that sort of face to face time that you lose. I think if you're working completely remotely with clients, and um, well, whilst we've done a lot of work overseas as well, um, we do value that time. Really closely. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we work on site, for example, uh, for a couple of days a week just to kind of get to grips with the data, uh, or they can come to us. Um, yeah, so the, the, the team is uh, is expanding as well. If anyone's watching or listening that uh, is looking for data science roles, please do visit our website and have a look at what's on, uh, what's on offer. We'll have it linked in the description uh, for the viewers and listeners. Uh, so okay. there, there's a wide variety of projects that I, I'm sure you've worked on in the past three years. Which uh, one or which ones were your favorite, and which uh, was the most challenging one in your opinion? Yeah, so many, so difficult to choose from. Um, they're all kind of challenging in their own separate ways. Sometimes because the data is particularly messy. Sometimes because the problem is difficult. And mm-hmm. um, one sort of springs to mind quite recently actually was in the field of uh, anti-money laundering. Um, okay. For anyone listening that um, isn't isn't close to money laundering, uh, this is a problem that's getting bigger and bigger with the likes of the challenger banks all. Um, upscaling and up, upskilling uh, rapidly um, mm-hmm. and and as, as a result of that there's you know more opportunities to launder money through these platforms so what we need to do as a data science company is make sure that we keep on top of um, the latest methodology in, in money laundering and anti-money laundering um, so that we can apply these algorithms to, to make sure that we can find patterns in transactions that mm-hmm. flag as anomalous um, and it's really not just a case of building rules because you can guarantee that once that set of rules in place, the money launderers will find a way to, to go around it. So what we try and do is build something more fluid and more flexible. Um, mm-hmm. And we've, we've done this recently actually for one of our fintech companies, um, whereby you know, we build things that actually look at the data and ask, um, even, if, even if we don't understand why it's anomalous, the fact mm-hmm. that it is anomalous is enough for something, somebody to look into the problem. Uh, and then there's, there's, there's feedback loops whereby, um, whereby those, the, the algorithm can then understand, okay, if this was anomalous this time, then I'm going to show this kind of thing more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scoring mechanic that, that goes alongside that. So really, um, this is an exciting project for us because not only is it it's using kind of cutting edge techniques, uh, we use graph databases for this, but it's also something that is, is kind of a, it's a, it's a feel good project. You know, we're kind of actually helping people to stop uh, behavior on the platform that's ultimately not productive for anybody. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's probably the one that springs to mind the most. Okay, so uh, this this must have included a lot of like confidential data. So one of the questions that even I as a freelancer get is, how do I find projects or gigs as a consultant, and how do I sell my profile to the client? For example, convincing the bank that I am the right person for this confidential data. So w- what are your tips for that? Well, yeah, I mean exactly. So it's really um, a challenge sometimes to stand out from the crowd because there are a lot of people these days that are yeah. that do data science or, or claim to do data science and how do you then make yourself stand out? So what we try and do is actually build um, examples of things up front that can show value even mm-hmm. before you engaged particularly with the client. So if you're a freelancer, for example, having some sort of um, GitHub repo or an uh, online demonstration of your work mm-hmm. can, can mean all the difference because suddenly 
you're not just somebody who on paper looks good, but yep. you've got something that somebody wants to kind of get hold of because they want that piece of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it really doesn't need to be anything, um, anything as a freelancer that you spend hours and hours of your time on, you know, just a simple demo that can show you, you understand the concept and you understand what you're, what you're ultimately looking to do can be really valuable. Um, I think as well, having your own, as a freelancer, having your own brand and having your own website, setting up, setting yourself up as a company um, mm-hmm. or as a small trader, um, rather than just, you know, just looking for work through online platforms where, you know, there's, there's a lot of noise on some of these mm-hmm. platforms. Um, you want to kind of, don't be afraid to undersell yourself, I, I would say as well, because your, your skills are valuable. And, you know, no matter how much you think you're, you know, if you, you want to charge the client, you can guarantee your work is going to deliver a lot more than that. So you should never be ashamed really of, of putting yourself out there and, and saying to being proud of what you can do for your, for your clients. That's a great point. Uh, also want to ask you, so you just talked about the GitHub profile, but many of these business clients don't understand these techie terms. So yep. how's your experience with dealing with these people and how can we convince them about our skills? Yeah, that's a good point. So I, I suppose um, having some sort of front end um, products is, is key. I think there's a, there's a big difference between just training a model and mm-hmm. having it on your GitHub repo and, and, and that's fine. But then put something on the front end of that. So there's, there's great tools out there now that are free to use, um, you know, like Metabase or even um, you know, Tableau Free Trial and then Tableau Reader, people can, can see what you see the output of your work. Something where it's clickable and it's, it's interactive um, makes all the difference because ultimately, you know, somebody's got to use this piece of work. It's not just numbers sitting in a database um, <laughs> that update daily and, you know, a, a churn predict- I always say a churn prediction that sits in your database updating daily is making you no money. Um, yeah. There has to be action on the back of it. So if you can show, if you can demonstrate the skill of taking something that's technical, like a machine learning model, converting it into something that's a business action. So how do you interact with this person, given they have a prediction of 80% or given that they have a prediction of 2% last week and it's now increased to 20%, how do you treat that person differently? That sort of, in, that sort of thinking is what separates good data scientists from great data scientists. Got it. Uh, so shifting the conversation to another aspect of your profile, which is technical writing. I, I'm a huge fan of your Medium articles. I think I've read almost all of them. So I'd like to talk more about where do you find the inspiration for these and how do you come up with the theme that you want to discuss? And what does the pipeline uh, look for you when you're writing an article? Yeah, well, firstly, thanks very much for taking the time to read the articles. Um, always nice to know somebody actually reads them. Um, you sort of write them and put them out there and then, yeah, it's, it's nice to hear that uh, you've, you like them, so that's great. I think um, what started me wanting to write a bit more was um, there was so much exciting stuff going on in, in uh, deep learning in particular and, and reinforcement learning with the likes of DeepMind, Google Brain, um, releasing papers that to read actually as a someone who's new to the field is, could be quite intimidating um, yeah. because they involve a lot of mathematics often, but they also involve uh, terminology that you may not be familiar with, etc., so I wanted to write kind of articles that could explain, even if you have no necessarily no background to the subject, that could explain at a high level what's going on. Um, so AlphaZero is a good example um, of that, where the algorithm is so kind of beautiful and, and elegant that it deserves this treatment, which doesn't necessarily need terminology and equations to, to explain what's going on, because it's quite, it's quite human, actually, the way that it thinks, um, in the sense that it's looking ahead and it's trying to understand, given this board layout, what do I think of it? And then it takes that information and rolls it into its own thoughts mm-hmm. and, um, and looks down different pathways. 
so yeah, I think um, I think I would, I'd recommend writing blogs for anyone because you know it's so true that if you can explain it to someone else, then you you really understand it yourself. Yeah, and that's what I found writing is that you you end up with a deeper understanding of the subject after you've written the blog than you you ever thought you'd have. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone. Got it. So uh, one of the articles that I really enjoyed is how to build your own alpha zero like AI, and mm-hmm. uh, you as a person with a math background would I, I assume would have been able to sift through the paper. But for people who don't understand the math well enough, in, in my opinion, your articles find the right balance between math. So as a math per- person, you might be tempted to you know put all the math in there because uh, just because you can. So how yeah. how do you find that balance for yourself? How much of Mad, do you want to cover in an article, and how much of code do you want to say? I, I yeah, good point. So I, I guess I want to cover enough that I don't feel like I'm leaving the reader. Um, I, I don't want to explain things so sort of simplistically that it just loses all in meaning. Because there's there's actually a lot of um, a lot of articles that do that, and I find sometimes, and it's actually really hard not to do this yourself, is that to try and just put things into such simplistic language that you realise you're not explaining anything anymore. You're sort of waving your hands and and pretending that you understand it, but you, you don't. And I think what, what really helps me is that if, I, if, if I'm reading a blog, if I'm trying to write a blog, I sort of, I write one way, I try and explain one way of um, getting the ideas across, but then come at it from a different angle. So you don't just have one sort of block of paragraph that tries to explain how something works, mm-hmm. but there's also a diagram that explains how it works. And there's also an analogy that explains how it works. And there's also, um, if, if you're, you really want to get into the maths of it then there's an appendix that shows you how it works mathematically um so yeah i i think what i what i hate reading books sometimes is when there's the one way of explaining it and then that's all they give you and, and you're like oh i've just got to keep reading this paragraph again, <laughs> and again until i get it but there's if you can find five or six different domains or different ways of explaining stuff that you know doesn't necessarily have anything to do with deep learning but talks about it in terms of um you know like just nodes talking to each other or what you know think things that people understand in general then it just it gives you a much deeper understanding of what's going on i think ultimately so for example in your cnn article where you created an analogy uh, that that uh, yeah. would be an approach exactly yeah and I, I don't think it's too early as well for you know kids to start learning about neural networks because i you know there's no way that in 20 years time that these things are going to have gone away this is forming a key part of being an engineer, being a statistician, being a deep, uh, being a data scientist these days. So, you know, I, I think the, the sooner that we can engage uh, you know, kids and in, engage people in general with these amazing, amazing uh, pieces of technology, using whatever language it takes, it doesn't have to be mathematical, then that's all for the good, really. Because um, they're, they, they're very elegant concepts and they should be explained mm-hmm. elegant. They don't, they don't have to have maths to, to be able to explain them. Mm-hmm. So we, since we just talked about books, I'd also like to first thank you for creating the generative deep learning book. That's the title of the book. It's uh, published by O'Reilly. So thank you for writing it. That's all right. Yeah, no worries. I'm glad it's finally out. <laughs> it's a long journey. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll be discussing all about it. Uh, could you tell us uh, more about the book? Uh, what do you expect a reader would get out of it? And what prerequisites uh, do you have set up for the book? Yeah, um, so generative deep learning is, uh, for anyone who's never heard of it, is uh, a branch of deep learning which really focuses on, um, on, on algorithms that can produce things that uh, you, 
you couldn't tell apart from something a human could, could do, or at least goes part of the way towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, the, it's, a, it's a branch that's very closely related to unsupervised learning, um, where supervised learning, you have a label and you're, you're trying to predict um, you're trying to predict what a class a given images or what class uh, a given set of structured data is. With uh, generative learning, you're really trying to understand the distribution that the data was generated from in the first place. So you can imagine, for example, a, a space of all of the possible arrangements of pixels in an image, um, highly high-dimensional space. Um, a small portion of that space will be beautiful works of art. So it's all about how do you teach a, a machine how to understand what's random noise and what's a Picasso? or what's, um, mm. what, what's just random letters and what's the next Harry Potter book. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting field. I have to admit, I, when I started writing, I was by no means an expert in, in, in it at all. And it's, it's interesting, having written the book, um, looking back now, um, it, again, it sort of harks back to the point that, that explaining it to someone else is the best way to learn it yourself. Yeah. Um, so I've tried in the book to kind of not really assume anything up front because that's how mm-hmm. I started really writing it you know I was I knew about deep learning and, and supervised learning um, and unsupervised learning but but generative models and GANs and VAEs in particular was not something that you typically do in your day-to-day job For so sure. <laughs> um, unless you're unless you're from you know unless you're actually researching this as part of a, a university it's not yeah. something businesses really want so um, yeah so prerequisite knowledge uh, Python really um, if you can write Python code then you can get started in generative deep learning mm-hmm. got it uh, so you mentioned a bunch of uh, generative techniques. What all uh, do you cover inside of the book? Yeah, so it goes right away from uh, having no knowledge. So this is where we introduce generative modeling in, as a concept. So mm-hmm. the idea of what it means to learn a probability distribution rather than a probability of y given x. Um, we then talk about... Sorry, uh, for people who don't even know what that terms mean, is that also covered inside of the book or do they have yeah. to know that? Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, um, yeah, it's, I guess it's the idea of what it means to uh, to learn something that is um, without uh, without a prior knowledge of which class uh, a particular image is. So, whether it's a cat or a dog, to be able to produce a picture of a cat or produce a picture of a dog, in um, it is is a very different um, is a very different skill for a machine to learn, and that's all covered in chapter one. Chapter two is all about deep learning. So you can, you can build generative models that don't involve deep learning, um, and people have been for, for a long time. What deep learning gives you is the ability for the model to learn what features are important about an image, such as a cat would contain an eye, for example, but so would a dog contain an eye. So to be able to generalize and understand what features are present in an image is obviously really key, and that's where deep learning is um, quite powerful. Uh, we also talk about... Uh, variational autoencoders in chapter three. Um, and we, all of the code is, uh, is using Keras, which is an amazing library um, mm-hmm. for deep learning. Uh, GANs are introduced in chapter four. Um, chapter five, then uh, through to eight, we tackle the four domains of painting, writing, composing, music, and uh, playing. So mm-hmm. chapter five is all about uh, mostly cycle GANs, um, uh, but also we cover uh, neural style transfer as well mm-hmm. as a technique, which Kind of involves deep learning, but in a, as a sort of you, you'll see in the book, it's a, it's quite a, a neat way to use a, a pre-trained model as part. Again, of the, uh, going back to the question, so for people who like I am aware of these concepts, but people who are intimidated by just these terms, you will style transfer. Are these covered from the ground up, or again, is there any assumption? Yeah, absolutely, they're all covered from the ground up. So you know, like um, so, a cycle GAN, most GANs, which are generative adversarial networks, are. Um, 
have some sort of name in front of them to describe what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So there's CycleGAN is one kind of network um, that, that everyone seems to use these days for uh, style transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also MuseGAN, um, which is covered in Chapter 7, and that's mm-hmm. using, uh, that's using a, a slightly different architecture as well. Uh, chapter 8 is all about the, um, the World Models paper of David Haar and Jürgen Schmidt-Huber. Uh, which is a kind of different uh, twist on generative modeling because it also involves reinforcement learning, which is where you get uh, agents to play games and understand how to achieve some sort of reward in an environment. So mm-hmm. how to, for example, drive a car around a track and not veer off the track and crash. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really interesting use of generative modeling there. Uh, and the book really finishes just with a, a general sort of look forward to the future and what's happened in the last year. Um, mm-hmm. Finishing the book in May uh, was, was nice because it, it was just about the time that um, uh, GPT-2 uh, was being talked about a lot in the, so I managed to squeeze that into the last chapter and start talking <laughs> about what that is and BERT, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the field's evolving very, very rapidly. Um, and it's just, I tried to write something that's a really a concise, but um, also detailed introduction to generative modeling in general. Um, okay. So it should get you to a point where, yeah, I've gone from nothing to knowing enough about generative modeling to take it further. Also, a quick plug, uh, we had uh, we have an interview with the creator of Musenet, Christine Payne, up on the series. So if you'd like to check that out, please, uh, you can find it in the website of our podcast. Um, now, also curious about why did you use Keras and TensorFlow instead of PyTorch? So I'm more on the PyTorch side of things, a fan of PyTorch. Just curious about your thoughts. Yeah, um, so actually, I've always used uh, Keras with TensorFlow. That's been my go-to tool. Um, I, I don't have a particularly strong affiliation with either. I think they're both fantastic languages. And I wouldn't, if I was anyone's listening that's kind of hung up on which one to choose between, I, I really wouldn't worry too much. I think both are fantastic and you're not going to be left uh, disappointed by either framework. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the, there's really not much more to say about it than that. I, there's, there's no reason I chose Keras over PyTorch. I think it's just whichever one you fall into first and you know, it becomes your mother tongue, if you like. Got it. So one of the concerns that I think I read somewhere on Twitter was that you may be handholding a person through the creative process and that might eliminate their creativity. What are your thoughts on that? Like if a person who follows this book, would it affect their creativity or enable them to use their creativity? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, the book really is, is an introduction to the field, but I think hopefully by the time people have read it, they'll realize that there's a whole load more to learn and, you know, you could easily be writing a book forever and ever and ever, and you would just be catching <laughs> up with current developments. And um, at some point, you have to say, right, this is this is concise enough to describe what's happened to, to twenty, you know, May twenty nineteen. Um, and then the person you write will have to use their own creativity and, and intuition and understanding of the field to take it further. And the exciting thing about generative modeling is it's really fun to, to like build stuff that produces art or produces writing. And um, you know, like the you know you've got a good supervised learning technique when your accuracy improves a tiny bit and you know you can pat yourself on the back and say that's a good day's work but when you're building generative models and you see things that are like you know wow i've I've managed to produce something that looks like a human face or um something that's genuinely impressive and you know you'd hang on your wall (laughs) then um it's yeah it's a different kind of buzz i guess got it Uh, so you already had a wide experience of writing these technical articles uh, do you think that was helpful and what did a book authoring pipeline for you look like? Was there a lot of annoying editor interventions involved or how was the process like for you? 
I think I was probably more annoying for the editor than the other way around. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so what happened was, uh, obviously I started writing the blogs first and I really were kind enough to get in touch and say, you know, like, like you're writing, do you want to put some of these together into the form of a book um, on a topic of your choice? So I was given the opportunity from them really, so I've got them to thank a lot for this. Um, which is why, again, I think you know, if you want to become an author, starting with blogging is a fantastic way to get out there. And you don't actually need to chase the publisher that much. If you're writing good content and people like what you're, you're doing, then you know you, you might get lucky like I did and, and have them come to you. Um, so the, the writing process for me took about a year. Um, I, I kind of templated it to begin with and worked out what chapters I wanted to write. But it evolved a lot, actually, as the year went on, simply because like everything was changing in generative yep. modeling. Uh, Big Bang got released and then BERT and then yeah, GPT-2, uh, Usenet. I mean, the field was just going crazy. Uh, and I just thought, I've got to get this book out because people want to learn about this. And um, So I would, I would recommend if you want to write a book, choose a subject that's not hot now, but you think in a year's time is going to be big news um, because that's the audience you're writing for. Um, got it. So yeah, start writing some blogs about that. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the hardware intensity required for this? So I have a 2080 Ti, which in my country costs around $4,000 for the complete box to set up. And yeah. generative techniques are pretty hardware intense. So what are your thoughts? Can uh, someone follow this book using just Google Collab and even or, or Kaggle kernels for that matter and produce some interesting artwork? Yeah, they can. Absolutely. And that's the beauty again of having this amazing thing called the internet where we can just spin up uh, GPU based environments very, very quickly. Um, I, you know, I would say actually I've written the book from the point of view that there may be people buying this who've just got their laptop. They aren't really prepared to spend thousands of pounds on GPUs or even, you know, a fraction of that, but still in the cloud and it's pay per use. So yeah. actually I've written it from the point of view that you can run all of this on your, you know, I've got you know, 16 gig of RAM laptop or something. It's, there's no problem whatsoever. You're going to be able to do generative modeling um, on that and get some good results. And I, I think from, you know, my, my view on this is, I don't like the idea that um, you have to have incredible hardware to be able to get started with deep learning because it just puts this barrier up that means that people feel like they can't even, it's not for them. And it's just not true. You can, you can do an amazing amount with CPUs. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, you know, it's so easy these days to then, if you do get it running on the CPU and it's looking great, then put it onto the GPU and it runs, you know, X times faster. And, uh, you know, that's all the GPU is going to give you is, is the speed. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you can prove the concept on your laptop, then fantastic and put it onto the GPU and let's see it really go. So, yeah. Got it. So, uh, asking you about like, can you envision a person who's maybe like had an online or a self-taught path who's read amazing blog posts by people like you and maybe read a book, generative book by you. Can you envision such a person working on your team? And you already talked about how to build the right portfolio. How can they also, uh, what are the, what would be other things to look out for when building a profile? Well, I think what we look for more than anything, I would say, is attention to detail. I think we, we like people that care, not just that they've got something running, but they understand every single line of code. Um, because the, the beauty and the problem with having all of this information available and other people's code available for free, effectively open source, <laughs> is you can run something and look like you understand everything really, really well, whereas what you've done is clone the repo and you know, run one Python command. Yeah. So what we care about is attention to detail. So someone who's gone in, understands why things are running as they are, maybe improved it, changed <laughs> it, tweaked it, run it on their own data. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I could see that kind of person working for our team. 
that's exactly who we'd be looking for, really. Um, somebody who, who cares about the detail. I think that's the biggest thing, especially in this, this day and age where it's so easy to, to lose sight of the nuts and bolts of how something works and, and just you know, say that you can run something and then that's good enough. Got it. So I've also interviewed for the Google A residency program and I can confirm that this is also their approach. They actually look for attention to detail, not just talking about these huge algorithms. The questions were under NDA, but broadly speaking, this was the same approach by them. Yeah, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how do you stay up with the explosive uh, explosive research uh, from the machine learning community? Does uh, Do you think like your Mac, math background is helpful when you're sifting through papers or what's your approach there? Yeah, actually, that, I think that's probably a key skill uh, as well, as well as attention to details, the ability to summarize a huge amount of information into a small amount of information rapidly and mm-hmm. and. You know, when, when I'm learning about new techniques, what the majority of the time actually is spent going through maybe 100 articles, 100 blog posts, papers, videos, uh, books, anything that you can find, and taking a little bit from each, the best you know, paragraph, the best way of explaining something, and somehow forming that into an idea of, in your own head of how things work. Um, there's some great resources, like, um, so Archive, obviously, for papers is, is fantastic, yep. is preprint. Uh, papers, but then also um, uh, Andre Carthy's uh, archive sanity checker, which is amazing, which just shows you these are the kind of in the last year, these are the papers that have been bookmarked the most. Um, highly recommend that um, just to get, get an idea about what's, what's the big papers today. Also papers with code um, is brilliant. So that's the, the place where you can, you can go and see what's currently achieving state of the art on things like the Atari reinforcement learning problems or yep. Supervised learning challenges, uh, CFAR data sets, for example. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think in general, um, the proliferation of information is just you know, is too much sometimes, and you need to kind of <laughs> stop and, and sort of sit down with a blank sheet of paper and a pencil and see if you can write out from first principles how something works. Because mm-hmm. if you can, then you're good to go, and that's, that's you, you know, understood and understanding things. Um, if not, then just keep reading don't ever stop googling and because it's it's there's no shame in not knowing how to do something um at all just keep googling until you understand it and you'll get there eventually got it how much time uh, do you spend on a personal basis on keeping up to date with the papers and all while working yeah i try to try to as much as possible but i mean running the business is obviously the main priority but um what i like to do is just kind of take something that's a blog post that's interested me and just make sure there's always some dead time that you know you're on a train or you're on a uh, boring journey somewhere and just <laughs> sure you've always got this kind of backlog of things you want to learn about um yep. so that you can just you know and you've got that available offline so that you can read it on the tube here in london or something mm. um and just to just to really you know develop that love of learning and never lose it so my final question to you would be uh, what best advice do you have for someone who feels intimidated by all of these quote-unquote advanced uh, techniques for deep learning and is afraid to start out? Well, I suppose, I, I honestly believe that, you know, the, the next big advancements in deep learning don't have to come out of the labs of DeepMind and Facebook that, you know, the, the reason obviously they do is because, you know, these people are highly intelligent, they have the time to work on these problems and they have the best hardware. But that doesn't mean necessarily that somebody who's just starting out in the field could never catch up, you know, mm-hmm. because they'll come with their own ideas and, um, and I think, you know, the best way to get started is just to, to start small and, and 
work on projects that you've built from the ground up. Don't necessarily just clone someone else's repo and start with that code base. Try, try to understand what that code does and write it yourself in your own manner. Yep. Um, and, and find a project that you care about. So in the early days of when I was doing it, this is back on like just starting to program like really early, like in school. Okay. Um, it was all about fantasy football for me. So it was all about trying to find algorithms that could find the best players or find the best, <laughs> uh, the ways of adjusting the team. Um, you've got to find that personal project because if you don't, then there's no, you lose that motivation. Um, so just have that in mind, you know, find something that really interests you an open data set. There's a lot of open data out there on Kaggle um, or whatever, whatever it is that gets, gets you interested. And then, you know, just dive in. Don't be afraid to start as well. You see a lot of people worried that they don't know enough and, you know, their code doesn't run, but then that's where you learn is, is when you make mistakes and you, you debug, you know, like 90% of coding is debugging or something. Um, I, I totally believe that. So, you know, that's, that's where, that's where the hard work goes in and, that's what's going to make you, you know, one of those people one day that might make the breakthrough to, you know, the likes of AGI and all of these exciting things that still are yet to be solved. It, you know, it could be you that's, that makes that breakthrough if you start now. Uh, thanks for the amazing advice and thank you for this amazing conversation. Before we end the call, what would be the best platforms to follow you and maybe for people who want to get in touch with you for a project, what would be the best platforms for that? Yep. So our website, um, our company website um, for general uh, business inquiries is uh, adsp.ai, um, applied data science partners.ai, that, that stands for. And then uh, myself personally, um, I've never really, I've never really taken off on Twitter. I don't really, don't really understand it, but um, I, I, I've got a Twitter account. If you can find it, then that's, that's amazing. Um, I'm DT Foster. I think I've got about, I, I, I don't know, I think I've got nine followers or something, which is, uh, which is, which is fine. But I am on Twitter um, and I do check it from time to time. But we've also got our company Twitter handle as well. Um, which is applied underscore data. Um, so okay. please do follow that. Um, and also our Medium blog uh, is, yeah, as you said, up there. And, and that's probably the best place to contact me. Okay. David's profile will be linked under uh, under the uh, description. Many people struggle to find it, so I have to point it out. Th thanks so much, David, for this amazing conversation and for all of your blog post efforts and also for creating the amazing book. Our pleasure. And thanks again for having me on. It's been great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.